sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Welcome to episode one, the first episode of season two of YDHTY. Now, one of the rare areas where left and right agree these days is in their hatred of social media. And I know this because I hear them talk about it on social media all the time. Now, Donald Trump's removal from Twitter and the role social media outlets played in spreading disinformation around our elections and COVID has led legislators to seek to regulate what can and can't be said on social media and who can and can't moderate what for which reason. So this month, we're going to be digging into the topic with a series of enlightening conversations moderated by yours truly. Now to kick things off, I asked Matthew Feeney, director of the Cato Institute's Project on Emerging Technologies to join me. Matthew's focus is on the intersection of civil liberties and new technologies and, as one might imagine, feels a hands-off approach to tech regulation is best. Now, this being said, his argument is that regulation would simply serve to make both government and big tech companies stronger. And he was also extremely patient when I repeatedly referred to Section 230, a regulation that protects internet companies from being held liable for what's published on their platforms, as Prop 230, which is a regulation that does not exist. Thank you, Matthew. Hope you enjoy my conversation with the smart man. I will be back at the end with some final thoughts. So, Matthew, thank you for coming on. Um, As I mentioned before I hit record, the reason I was really interested in talking is the issue of tech censorship is something that's come up quite a bit uh, since uh, since social media companies, in particular tech companies, began moderating content both around COVID, but also uh, around the issue of election fraud. And one of the things that this podcast really focuses on a lot is how misdirection is often used to polarize. And what I'm hoping to get out of this conversation is an understanding, number one, what is the state of tech censorship? Is it something that is it something that's real? Is it something that is imaginary and intended to gin up the base? Um, and then on a greater level, maybe are there what what are the additional or what is the responsibility of the tech industry in terms of enabling free speech versus moderating content for issues of public safety, for example. So with that thrown your way, I, I'd like to, to start off by giving folks watching and folks listening a, uh, an idea as to what the landscape is like. And, and now my understanding is the only real regulation that discusses how, uh, how uh, technology companies should moderate or treat, treat speech and treat content is Prop 230, correct? Yeah, or well, Section 230. Section oh, 230, sorry. Yeah, there you go. No, it's fine. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's right. It's a very often discussed law, but um, unfortunately, I think it's become so politicized that it's um, also widely misunderstood, as a lot of uh, politicized laws are. The, the crux of it is that this was a 
a section of the, the 1996 Telecommunications Act uh, passed without much fanfare at the time, but has become a very uh, prominent feature of debates about online censorship uh, because of its, um, its two main provisions, which are uh, first that, uh, broadly speaking, there are some exceptions, but broadly speaking, uh, you are responsible for what you post online, not the place that you posted it. So, for example, uh, if I say something libelous about you on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube content or something like that, uh, you can sue me, but not Facebook, Twitter or YouTube is the, the crux of it. Um, and the second feature of the of the law states that you cannot hold uh, private companies liable for these content moderation decisions. Now, the, before 230, they're always free to make these decisions. Um, that's, um, you know, I think important. This isn't the law that allows them to remove content or to disassociate with certain uh, creators. Uh, it just provides them with um, some liability protection there. Uh, and it's become a very powerful political tool. Uh, and I'm not, you know, someone one day, I hope an anthropologist or a historian will write a book about how the law became such a prominent feature of um, the political debate, because uh, it's, it's actually oftentimes, I think, at least from the conservative side, it's, it's really not the law I feel as if they should be angry about. Um, it's, it's not the law, like I mentioned, that allows them to disassociate um, with content. Uh, it emerged thanks to two court cases from the 1990s that concerned uh, Representative Chris Cox from California and his Democratic colleague, Ron Wyden, who's now a senator. Um, but it's, um, I, I think, an important law to, to discuss because it raises interesting issues about um, responsibility online and um, how in a world where we're used to uh, users all over the world uploading photos, comments, videos, um, how that should work. And, and you're right, you know, to point out that across the political spectrum, there are a range of concerns. You have conservatives who seem to think that they're in Silicon Valley seems to be a too little content problem. Um, from the political left, there seems to be a problem about there being too much content, uh, whether that's political interference, deep fakes, harassing content, those sort of things. Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly what I was what I was thinking as well. Is the tech on the whole is getting hammered from both sides? You know, to your point, uh, conservatives are are under the sense that their views are being uh, being censored, but you know the the left is also uh, hammered on them for uh, for disinformation around COVID, for example. And and I think maybe even as a little subset of that, digital privacy is another one that doesn't doesn't seem to be as prominent, but is still kind of lurking in the wings there. And the, the, the second part of that is, of those claims of, of political bias, have you seen any evidence that there is any sort of political censorship one way or the other by tech companies? Uh, I, I haven't, but I also am not sure how much it matters, um, by which I mean the following. Um, I think the the evidence for there to be of being a systemic concerted campaign to remove conservative voices from prominent social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, um, I think is left wanting. Um, now, now conservative activists and politicians will point to uh, numerous um, anecdotes uh, of which there are many, uh, but then of course the left responds saying, you know, what are you talking about? Social media has been a huge 
advantage to the um, American conservative activist world. Look at how much you know Ben Shapiro gets shared on Facebook, and PragerU has you know millions of subscribers and billions of views online. And you know the two things I would say about that. I mean, one is the fact that both sides of the political spectrum have completely different views about what's going on. I think is rather revealing in and of itself. Secondly, from at least where where I'm sitting in the Libertarian Cato Institute, uh, policy-wise, it makes no difference to me whether it's true or not. Uh, So if it is the case, let's imagine, for the sake of argument that uh, the heads of Google and Facebook and Twitter met in a cafe in downtown San Francisco, and they said, you know what, we should make an effort to make sure that uh, American conservatives find it hard to speak on our platforms. Uh, now, you can say that would be a bad business decision. Um, it's not very tolerant. Uh, it's not in line with traditional American values. You can say all those things, but I nonetheless think it should be legal for them to do that. Uh, I think crucially, though, it'd be a pretty bad business decision from these companies for these companies to do that. Um, and of course, um, I think uh, the, the heads of all of the companies I've mentioned have mentioned that this isn't going on. Uh, but I understand why um, conservatives might not take that with <laughs> to, to mean very much. Uh, you know, it, I think you would have to be naive to the point of not being taken seriously to deny that many of the people employed at these companies are, to put it uh, crudely, left of center, <laughs> right? And are not. Um, and I think that's that's fair to say, and it's it's undeniable. Um, but I think it is possible for a company to have a lot of left wing um, employees without um, employing a concerted systemic, uh, systematic uh, attempt to, to silence certain views. Um, the, the interesting thing about this in the American context is that there's no guidance really from government. I mean, the, the First Amendment is the most, I would argue, permissive free speech law in the world. Uh, the United States has an incredibly broad um, breadth of legal content. There's no such thing as uh, hate speech in the United States. Uh, which is not the case in many other uh, Western liberal democracies. And so American tech companies are faced with this this problem where there's a lot of legal speech out there that they might want to disassociate with, Uh, you know, uh, footage of animals being crushed to death or videos of beheadings and uh, pornography. You know, there's all kind of content that is legal, uh, but a private business may understandably wish to distance itself from. Yeah. And that's something I think a lot of people don't understand is just how sacrosanct freedom of speech is in this country. Because to your point, in any other democracy, you can define what is a certain type of speech. In Germany, you can do it. In Ireland, you can do it. Um, And this is the one country where that is not allowed. Um, I know this, this doesn't necessarily relate to the issue of tech censorship, but in the countries where free speech is limited, is there a difference in terms of how the tech companies operate, or is it really up to the to the end user to stay clear of the law? Uh, the, it does operate differently. I'm, I'm not an expert in international law, but I do know, for example, that uh, I believe it's France where there is an obligation on platforms to remove certain content within a certain time period of getting notice uh, from the government. And uh, a lot of this has to do with uh, speech that glorifies terrorism or is associated with hate speech, um, things like that. Uh, But none of that is um, a legal issue in the United States. You can post on 
uh, Facebook, you know, Al Qaeda was right and wasn't 9-11 great or something like that. Now, Facebook may take the decision to remove that content, um, but it's not illegal to say that. You, you, you face no repercussions from the government for saying those sort of things. Yeah. And, you know, get, getting back to, to a point you made earlier, too, it, it sounds very much like your thesis is whether the tech companies are censoring views or not, it's immaterial. They're private companies and they have the freedom to do that. That's their right. The, the, the one question I have that kind of spins off that is, you know, in, in technology specifically, there's, there's a certain scale you need to reach in order to be profitable. And something, as I was going through your work, something that popped up was how companies like Facebook and YouTube and Google and so on, they, they really, their business model is based on that vast network effect, you know, having billions and billions of users. Um, and, and it seems to me like that in and of itself can be a way to crowd out competition because there can only be so many networks with billions and billions of users out there. So is there any validity to the argument that the tech sector might not be that competitive marketplace that leaves room for upstarts to come in and fill the void should a particular political party or people with a particular belief system get turned off? It's a good question. And um, I, I think it's it's worth, you know, obviously, um, conceding that even if you view these companies as uh, private companies with the right to do what they want with content, that they, they still, you know, they have a ton of um, cultural and political uh, influence. It'd be, be silly, I think, to deny that. Uh, and, you know, the, the, on the question of competition, I think it's worth keeping in mind that these companies are um, competing with each other. You know, every, um, every minute someone's writing comments on a YouTube page is one they're not spending on Facebook or they're not posing a tweet. Uh, but also, you know, although we're used to these services as being um, for, say, search or social media, um, that's not really what they're selling, right? In the sense that uh, when you're using Facebook, you're not paying Facebook to use social media. That's not the good they're selling. Um, they're, they're selling digital advertising space and they're competing with Google, which, although it has a good search tool, it's not selling search. Uh, so these are companies that are competing with each other. Uh, and it's true that their value comes from the fact that billions of people are using the service. Uh, I think if you are interested in founding a social media company that competes, um, that certainly makes um, makes it difficult. You know, you're going to have to start off small and try to persuade people that your time is better spent on your platform than Facebook's. Um, but I don't know how uh, Section 230 reform or how many of these antitrust efforts are going to um, be successful in addressing that. I mean, especially on 230, I think the, the harder you make it for startups to, uh, to get off the ground, the harder it will be for them to compete with Facebook. Uh, the fact is that Section 230, I think, especially has very pro-competition effects because it means startups can save a lot of costs. They don't have to hire a ton of lawyers uh, to make sure that every piece of content is um, not a lawsuit waiting to happen. Uh, and, and although you know you and I have been talking a lot about social media, keep in mind there are a lot of services that rely on network effects that aren't social media and also rely on 230. Uh, you know, um, a Wikipedia perhaps being the best example, right? This is 
a, a great service that, that millions and millions of people use and contribute to, uh, but it couldn't exist without 230. Um, and, and the Wikimedia Foundation doesn't need a huge team of lawyers to ensure that they're, they're safe. Uh, so I think uh, people should keep the pro-competition effects of 230 in mind when thinking about reform. Yeah, I, and I, I think you, you bring up a good point there, which is the, the alternative is just onerous startup costs for anyone looking to enter the market. And that could be a parlor or that could be a network that is really focused on promoting conservative views or again, promoting views of a certain, uh, of, a, of a certain position. One, one of the, one of the things you mentioned as well early on is that there are other issues that the party should be more concerned with. What do you think is one or, or what's the list of the, the most important issues that maybe aren't being discussed? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. The um, the the issue surrounding online speech, I think, aren't um, so much to do with whether people have places to post their views. Because uh, I think you know we're very fortunate to live in in a world where if you have a view um, and you want to put it on on the internet, uh, you can do it in the United States as long as it's legal content. Um, now, one of the issues I do have is that. I'm, I'm worried about how attempts to regulate these companies make them bigger and stronger. Um, libertarians all the time talk about regulatory capture, which is the, 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 these powerful market incumbents like the Facebooks and the Googles are going to oppose regulation, oppose reform up until the point they view such reform as inevitable. And then their lobbyists are going to hit the ground running and they're going to try and make sure that um, whatever regulations um, emerge from the, this political environment are those that they can comply with. Uh, look, I mean, Facebook and Google can hire more lawyers and engineers than God. Uh, they will survive whatever reform comes about. And, and last year, um, you may have seen these, and, and I'm sure some of the listeners have, uh, you may have seen uh, Facebook um, issuing ads talking about how they now supported changes to internet regulation. And uh, I don't think that's a surprise. Uh, I think that there's a real risk that um, adds this, this bipartisan uh, hatred of some of these companies um, emerges that legislation will come out that is ultimately anti-competitive. And I, I, I worry about that, not just because I have a rather, you know, boring uh, libertarian aversion to government <laughs> regulation, but because uh -huh. um, I, I think that a, a lot of these prominent companies have a rather uh, boring uh, way of doing content moderation, and I want there to be competition in that. And what, what, and what I mean is, it's very centralized, where you have one, um, someone in a, in a corporate building somewhere, and they and a team have decided what the rules are going to be, um, and what the rules are going to be on their platform, and uh, it's, it's their way or the highway. And yeah, we're, we're just kind of used to this, which is okay. Yeah, if I'm on YouTube, I got to follow YouTube's rules or if I'm on Twitter, I have to follow their rules. Uh, but there are services and projects out there experimenting with, you know, decentralized uh, social media networks or ways of doing things. Uh, Mastodon being perhaps the best example here. Uh, and, and I want there to be a market where that kind of experiment can, can go ahead and where startups can compete. Uh, because, you know, if you look at, I think a lot of the early the early visionaries on the internet team, that they didn't envision um, a bunch of corporations on the West Coast um, having, um, being 
want some of a handful of places where people do most of their thinking and talking and sharing of ideas. Uh, and um, I, I, I worry that um, this has just become uh, normal and people think it's the best way to do it. And I don't think it's the best way to do it. Yeah. Well, I think if you were to put like a young Sergey Brin and Larry Page in a time machine and take them to now, they'd probably just light Google's code on fire. You know, I don't think I, I don't think it's exactly what they what they had in mind. I, I want to jump and this is this is where we're going to kind of wade into into murky waters here because I, I've been I've been trying to I've been I've been wrestling with what it is that tech companies do to encourage usage um, and the way they amplify certain voices and how that all comports with the free flow of ideas that we value in this country. Because, you know, I think if we go back to the founders and we, we look at what they envisioned, you know, to an extent they envisioned I, I would argue a, a level playing field or as level of a playing field as you could have of ideas, this unrestricted flow of free speech or this marketplace of ideas. And, you know, a couple things have, um, I think there are a couple things that tech companies do that, that, that skew that. And so a couple of examples are, you know, number one, serving like content. So I think the thing a lot of people don't understand about technology is we all kind of have our own internet. You know, Facebook and Google, they know us personally, Instagram and so on. And they know what is going to encourage engagement. They know what we're going to like. And that has had some fairly nefarious effects because it's allowed us to go down these ideological habit trails effectively where we're walled off from differences of opinion or from, from different thought. Um, and the second part is the way that they amplify certain voices. So, for example, you know, Trump is a case in point. Um, I think his bombastic nature is a large part why he received, why he got so much visibility. Or even if you look at some of the uh, COVID conspiracy theories that were floating out there. You know, they were floating out there because they were being liked, they were being shared, they were being commented on. In a lot of ways, people fighting over them made them more visible. And so does that in any way clash with the, let's call it the spirit of, of freedom of speech and the, and the spirit of, of uh, the, the spirit of unrestricted free speech in this country? I suppose uh, uh, an answer could begin with, well, compared to what, right? So if we don't, if we've identified um, the problem, uh, we, we should ask what the alternative is. So uh, YouTube can tell that I watch videos about uh, chess, right? And then when I go to YouTube next, it recommends more videos like that because it sort of has, like you said, personally knows me and knows, okay, well, Matthew would appreciate this video or this video. Uh, now, if it didn't did that, what would it look like? Would I just have to scroll through YouTube videos chronologically to try and hope that I could find it or just rely on the search bar person, you know, uh, in order to find things? Um, when it comes to issues like, you know, Trump's Twitter account, there's um, there are difficult questions about content moderation. And something I, I think listeners should consider is 
so it's so often in these debates that that something sounds obvious um, and easy when it's actually really hard, uh, where someone will say, okay, well, you know, imagine you're sitting in Twitter and you think, okay, well, are we really going to say that the, the leader of the United States isn't allowed on the platform? And um, people say, yeah, that's not a great look. Maybe we should say there's an exception for public figures or people who are elected. And they're like, well, what about people who are public figures, but they're not elected? They're from authoritarian regimes. Like, are they allowed on? Uh, you have, you know, and that's that's difficult. And you have issues um, like, uh, for example, uh, Facebook's ban on images of new children, which sounds, you know, sensible enough, obviously. Uh, but then someone posts that photo from the Vietnam War of the, these, you know, the children fleeing the napalm bombing. Um, and that gets flagged and taken down. And the question is, are, are you really going to say that Facebook won't host one of the most famous images of the 20th century uh, because one of the children in that photo is nude? Um, and you return to your question of, well, should there be any recommendation at all? Maybe we should just have uh, people arrive on the scene and they have to sort all this stuff out by themselves. But I think what people find, but this is something they, they love and hate about social media is um, social media companies are really good at this. Like they're really good at figuring out what will keep you engaged, what will get you angry, what will get you commenting, what will get the dopamine flowing. But uh, they're doing that for your enemies as well as your friends. Um, and so people seem to like the fact that when they go to YouTube or Facebook, they can have um, products that they like and love or content that they love recommended to them. But it worries them that their, um, their political enemies um, are having the same experience. And do you think there's do you think there's any and we get we're, we're getting out of the First Amendment here. But do you think there's any argument to regulate these companies on health grounds because i do feel when you look at how these products are designed and you look at um and 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 designed to encourage usage um there there are definitely uh, addictive properties to them oh for sure yeah i think there are um i don't know though if something being addictive is a sufficient condition for government regulation though um which um, you might expect me to say sitting here in my office at the Cato Institute. Um, <laughs> but what I um, what I'll mention though is uh, it, that there are um, there are potential anti-competitive worries here because if you want to prohibit a certain kind of behavior for getting customers or for making yourself more valuable, uh, that again is a regulatory regime that Google and Facebook will be able to take advantage of or exploit for themselves and. Uh, will make it harder for startups to to deal with. Um, you know, your, your question reminds me of concerns raised by uh, Senator Josh Hawley, who uh, I believe in the last year or so did discuss um, how dangerous he thinks you know infinite scroll is uh, as a feature, yeah. and maybe there should be some some regulation on that. Um, you know, it's not often that I, I suppose I sound like a conservative, but I'll just say you know there are. Um, ways to stop your children from spending hours and hours on the phone, and that's to take away their phone. <laughs> um, yes. And it might just sound a little old-fashioned of me, but um, that's one way to do it. Um, the the other issue, though, I think, um, if if we explore that more, is um, how how are you exactly defining the addictive feature, right? Um, and what do you want? Do you want there to be an automatic lock when uh, the phone's been used a certain amount of time a day. 
Um, what are you going to do with that regulation in place when there's an emergency and someone needs to use the phone? You know, it just, it seems to just raise all different kinds of difficult issues that I'd rather leave to parents and non-government institutions to figure out. Do you know why we can't have nice things in America or better put why we can't have open and civil debate in a democracy that requires it? It's because polarization is a feature, not a bug, in the American political system. We decide elections based on the person who can simply win the most votes, not the majority. And this means, as a candidate, I am better off appealing to a smaller group of hardened partisans by demonizing the other side and dividing than I am at finding consensus. And it's the reason we only have two parties in this country. It's the reason the majority of Americans choose to affiliate with neither of them. And it's the reason you listen to YDHTY. And we sorely need change if we're going to continue as a functioning democracy. And there are two ways I'm asking for your help. First, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, we grow by word of mouth. So if you dig what you're hearing on YDHTY, and I think you do, share it with your friends, neighbors, enemies. You can also find me on Twitter and Facebook. Second, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. Ranked choice voting is by far the easiest and most practical way to bring America to a consensus-driven system of elections, and Rank the Vote is dedicated to bringing that to every state. I hope you'll join me in the fight. And now, back to the episode. You know, it, it does sound like the, the basis of your, your argument or, or, or what, you f- what, what, what I'm hearing from you is that I, all these conversations around mitigating the ability that tech companies have to regulate and moderate speech are, are certainly worth discussing, but they're also outside the purview of the government. Because ultimately, if we bring the government in there, that will ultimately favor the larger industries who can afford the lobbyists to write the law in their favor and just build a moat around the market effectively. Is that? Yeah, that, that, that's, I think, a, a pretty fair summary. Um, I, I, would, I would add, though, that we have seen some attempts within these companies to um, mitigate some of the negative effects of their product. Um, for example, uh, Google has a, a lab, or, or maybe it's now a, a company within it called Jigsaw, which was tasked with um, identifying uh, young men who were becoming increasingly radicalized by Islamic extremists on uh, Google or YouTube. And um, more recently, that technology has been used to target uh, young American men who are becoming more and more enamored with um, right-wing uh, racial politics. And um, that's something that I think we, we should expect. Um, but, you know, that it, it raises the question of uh, how, how viable is that kind of, um, that kind of experiment or project for a startup? It's going to be a little harder to, to do that. Um, but again, the, I think your question is a good one because it's, it's really asking where should we be, what should be in the crosshairs here? Like what's an appropriate target? Um, is the fact that a lot of young frustrated men are tacking onto some pretty nefarious, um, horrible political ideologies an issue with the technology itself or with something broader in 
American political culture or the American economy, um, or all three, right? Um, I just think sometimes um, these tech companies find themselves in the crosshairs when they're either not the only ones who should be in there or they shouldn't be in there regardless. Oh, and I would 100% agree with that one. I mean, if you look worldwide, look, every country has social media. Every country has access to Google and YouTube for the most part. Um, but if you look at the types of people who become those, uh, you know, if you look at the types of people who who make the headlines and the types of people who trigger these conversations, you know, you're very often talking about disillusioned, isolated, um, mainly men who are marginalized in in one way or the other. And so, yeah, to your to your point, we should probably be looking to figure out how to address those issues um, outside of just or outside of closing off an avenue for them to do what they're probably going to do via some other method. Yeah. Uh, I mean, something I, I would add, if it's okay. I mean, I, yeah, I, I just want to to remind listeners that the, the internet is much bigger than uh, Silicon Valley. And when we think about the most destructive effects of online radicalization, we're very rarely talking about Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Uh, you know, the, the shooter in Christchurch, New Zealand uh, did not post his, um, uh, or at least, you know, a lot of the content that he posted, the manifesto um, that survived was not on Facebook. It was certainly streamed live on Facebook, but Facebook took it down uh, and YouTube, YouTube took steps to uh, remove the video. Uh, the, the shooter in Pittsburgh, you know, posted on Gab, which is a, a right wing alternative to Twitter. Uh, there's 8chan and these other uh, places online where you can go and find some of the most vile you know, racist uh, and, and, and violent rhetoric. But as we discussed earlier, um, the vast majority of that content is legal in the United States. Um, you are allowed to say New Zealand would be a better country if all of the Muslims were murdered. You're allowed to, that's, that's legal content in the United States. You know, it's an it's a abhorrent viewpoint. Uh, but if, if you're worried about that content, uh, I don't see how Facebook how regulating Facebook and YouTube helps much. Um, people who want to post that sort of thing um, will find refuge in other parts of the internet and they'll be protected by the First Amendment. Uh, now, that's, that's, now the, the real question is, why would someone think that in the first place? Uh, why would they feel like they need to find a community of people who agree with them on that? Um, that that's a much more difficult question. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts. And I know you, you, you'd mentioned up, or before we hit record, yeah, I know antitrust isn't your isn't your thing, but I'm I'm curious on your thoughts of AWS removing Parler, mm -hmm. um, because I do feel that there there's a certain you know when I look at when I look at Parler, and they are you know they were an app that was looking to serve what they viewed as a vacuum in the market, and. Um, the the ability for them to work at scale really depends on them being to, able to access services from a very small number of vendors. I mean, there aren't a lot of vendors that can do what AWS does. So I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on that. And and again, whether this is just free enterprise doing what free enterprise does, or if this raises a lot raises a larger issue uh, about these large near monopolistic companies being able to 
use their market market sway to suppress speech they don't like. I, I do think that discussions about uh, online speech and common carriage and those sort of things make more sense at that level in the stack, right? When you're talking about uh, companies like uh, or services like AWS providing, you know, web hosting. Um, you know, there are some people who say that if you're engaged in that business, you should really just take a hands-off approach to whatever website or service you're using. Um, with Paula in particular, first I just mentioned um, AWS has very is nowhere close. It seems to me a, a monopoly on web hosting, and, and in fact, what we've seen um, in the wake of um, the Pittsburgh shooting, there was similar action taken against Gab. Right, uh, the there is um, there seems to be a market out there for um, web hosts that are willing to be the web host of last resort for especially uh, right wing or extremist content, uh, and and so Paula, you know, was knocked down. And I, I don't want to be glib, you know, having AWS yank their support for your website on twenty four hours notice is a big deal, um, and that's that's going to hurt. Uh, but even when there was concern about Google and Apple removing the Parler app from their uh, mobile app stores, it was still possible to access Parler on Safari or Google Chrome. It was just the the mobile app, right? That was that was hampered there. Um, and we again return to the question I asked earlier, which is, well, compared to what? I mean, the the alternative is you you tell a private company if it's legal speech, you must host it. You know that's um that's tough given the amount of uh, the amount of content out there that's pretty um pretty revolting and that um, private companies might want to disassociate with, uh, especially when there seems to be a market um, for that kind of content um, anyway. You know, or web hosts that are willing to put up with it. Uh, the, I, I seem to remember there was a, a conversation about this in the wake of the uh, the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally where Cloudflare removed its um, support for Stormfront, um, which is a white supremacist um, bulletin board, basically. Uh, and I seem to remember, you know, there were discussions, I, I think it was in their public statement, the, the CEO of Cloudflare saying, look, I, I invite government regulation here, you know, just tell me what to host and I'll host it. Um, I don't know if I'm particularly comfortable with with that. Um, it would concern me more, right? I, I think if there was a legitimate monopoly problem here, um, but AWS is nowhere close, it seems to me, to having a, a monopoly on web hosting. Uh, so I guess, yeah, get back to me when um, AWS is a monopoly and we'll have a more interesting uh, conversation. But I've, I'm, I've written about this before on the Cato website that I find the argument that we should treat Facebook and Google as common carriers um, I, I find that very unpersuasive. I think I'm still not persuaded, but I think the argument becomes stronger when you're lower in the stack, when you're talking about web hosting um, providers like AWS or Cloudflare. Understood, understood. And that actually, that, that tees up another, another question I had for you too, which is if you, if you look at how a company like Facebook or a company like Google behaves, you know, there's in a lot of instances, when they see these networks start to grow, they'll just acquire them. And there are only so many companies that can do that. Um, so, for example, Facebook acquiring Instagram or Google acquiring YouTube. Do you think that in any way has a dampening effect on competition in the market? Uh, not, not really. I think you know consumers seem to benefit from these um, acquisitions for the most part. Um, I think uh, YouTube became better and Instagram became better when they were bought. Uh, 
Uh, and there are services out there that I, I think because of their philosophy or their business model will never sell. Although, you know, never say never. I think when someone's offering to make you a multimillionaire, um, that, a lot of people find that difficult to, to resist. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the encrypted um, app signal, for example, you know, is a nonprofit and is very popular. I can't imagine they'd be selling to Facebook anytime soon. Uh, WhatsApp, of course, is another um, acquisition we didn't, um, we didn't mention. Uh, I mean, I suppose the question is, you know, what, what is Instagram? Instagram is a service where you can post videos and video, uh, photos and videos uh, for users to come and interact with. Uh, there are many other places you can do that on the internet. Uh, it seems to me that it doesn't create a, a monopoly problem. And uh, if, um, if someone wants to buy, if Facebook wants to buy a company, they should be free to do that. Uh, but I return again to an issue I have with the, the risks of regulation. Um, I remember a while ago, Josh Hawley, uh, the senator from Missouri, introduced a bill saying that Section 230 should be contingent on uh, services demonstrating that they, demonstrating to the FTC that they engage in uh, politically neutral content moderation. And in order to um, head off the, the problems of um, startups, he said, but this would only apply to large internet companies that have more than, I forget the exact figure, but it was something like 10 million users a month or something. Um, but then my, my thought was, well, that just means if you're a startup and you have 9 million view, uh, visitors a month, it means, oh, if I'm going to have to start getting a certificate from the FTC once I hit 10 million, uh, I now have an extra incentive to sell to Google, which is I should just try and make the best company I can up until I get close to that threshold when the new regulation kicks in. And then I'll call up Facebook and Google and hope that they'll buy me out or something. Um, you, you, you know, I, I do think there are conservatives, especially who are aware of these issues of regulation becoming anti-competitive, but I haven't seen a way to square that hole to make sure that you are only punishing the big guys and not um, harming competition and, at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, and, and, Full disclosure, too, and I feel we're deep enough into this conversation where I can say this, too. You know, I, I think the the whole issue of tech censorship, I think the issue of, of attacking Section 230 uh, is really just a just a, a whipping boy uh, for for the party to gin up the base. I, I, I don't personally see um, I, I don't I don't personally see tech companies being overly heavy handed with. Uh, with with right leaning speech, I think it's just there, there seems to be more right leaning figures who fall in a foul of what they deem acceptable or not. Um, this a little off topic, but something I'm, I am curious about your thoughts on is is the issue of digital privacy because there there are two interesting issues at play here, which is um, tech companies on the whole are at, at least on the surface level. You know, they 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 put forth an effort in protecting their users' privacy from government intrusion on a surface level. I cannot I cannot say one way or the other how well they do on that behind the scenes. Um, but they're also <laughs> exceptionally less guarded about protecting their users' privacy when it comes to their own usage. Um, and do you feel is this a case of uh, again another case where I'm free to either choose to use a service or not, 
or do you feel these companies have some obligation to treat user data, you know, personal data a certain way? And, uh, and, and also some, and the government has some obligation to protect that as well. I, I do think that governments and the private sector have different obligations to, and how they treat this data. Uh, I, I, I do take the view that, um, it is possible to lead a semi-ordinary life without giving away a lot of personal information about yourself. You know, I, I, I don't have a Facebook account. Um, I, I use, you know, proton mail and signal and all these things, but, um, I'm aware that I'm, um, I'm kind of a weirdo. Um, I'm always, um, struck by the fact actually that, you know, um, I don't view privacy as a, an absolute right that everyone should value the same. You know, I think it's, it's a value. Privacy is a value people enjoy when they control information about themselves. And, you know, the fact is that some people uh, really don't mind if uh, Instagram knows what they had for dinner every day for months because they take photos of it all the time. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's fine. Um, everyone is, everyone has different is sensitive about different information. Some people view their diet as very sensitive and some people view their dating life as very sensitive. Some people view their political views as very sensitive. Everyone's different. Uh, and, and so my, my concern is always with um, what at least the, the government can do with that data. Uh, you know, certainly what Facebook and Google can do with the information it knows about you is, is rather creepy, but they, they don't have the power of a state. Um, uh, they don't have, you know, Facebook and Google can't arrest me or shoot me uh, or stop me from uh, from moving around, uh, but, but the government can. Um, and I think when it comes to, you know, how agencies like the Department of Justice or your local police department can access that data, you know, that, that's a question, I think, of um, Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. Um, there's certainly a, a disappointing uh, string of cases that make it far too easy for uh government access to access um, so-called um, third-party data. And um, that doesn't mean though that that Congress contact in, in the meantime, you know, you've seen, uh, for example, um, not in digital privacy, but for, as a, some kind of example, uh, the Supreme Court has yet to rule or overrule cases that say that police don't need a warrant to search your property with an airplane or helicopter. Um, but that hasn't stopped at least a dozen states around the country saying, yeah, but, you know, we're going to introduce a bill that says for drones, you do need a warrant. Um, the Supreme Court sets the floor, not the ceiling. Um, so there, there's space for lawmakers to make improvements. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, um, if you're creeped out about what Facebook and Google know about you, um, I would just urge listeners to consider what the FBI or other agencies would do with that same data if you were on the receiving end of a investigation. And this is the point where everyone and everyone listening says, oh, but that will never happen to me. <laughs> so I've got nothing to worry about. Um, yeah. Well, I think about Ed, I think about Ed Snowden um, yeah. and, and what he said, which is he wasn't, he, you know, he wasn't so concerned with how the vast amounts of data the NSA were collecting was used at the time. I think what he was more concerned about is the fact that the wrong person can come in and flip a switch and turn things very, very bad, very quick. Um, so yeah. I, I guess, I guess to close things off so far in our, let's call it exhaustive review for the time we've had allotted, um, it, it, it sounds number one, as if the, the tech companies are working more or are, are guided more by market forces than they are ideological ones, which, which I'd agree with. Um, it also sounds like the repercussions of, 
trying to take action on any perceived political bias would potentially make these companies stronger. Are there any issues that are being ignored right now that you feel really deserve the attention of the government or the, or the users for that matter? I think, uh, I mean, something that I don't think that is a political or policy answer to, but something that does uh, make me anxious and keep me up at night is um, I think as a culture, we still haven't quite figured out what to do about people who become prominent for stupid things they said when they were young and have changed their mind. Uh, so for example, uh, you know, in the wake of the Charlottesville rally, uh, a lot of the participants there were identified and, you know, lost their jobs or I think were kicked out of school in at least one instance, you know, something along those lines. Um, and my first instinct there is like, well, you know, these are people with some pretty dodgy political views and they took part in a public protest and you can't really claim to have anonymity when you are wanting to be outside <laughs> protesting in a public space. Um, at the same time, I want people who attended the Unite the Right rally to uh, change their mind and to have different views. Um, and I and if they do change their mind, it's still nonetheless the case that when someone Googles their name when they apply for the job, the fact that they attended that rally will still be the first thing that appears in a in a search. Um, so I don't know what we do about that. Um, I do I do know that I'm skeptical of European so-called right to be forgotten um, reforms or laws. The idea that you can ask for a private company to take down information that might embarrass you. Uh, I never want it to be the case that the government can tell an organization they must remove true information <laughs> about somebody. Um, but nonetheless, I think this is a difficult question to or difficult issue. I, like I said, I don't know what the answer is, but um, and we're still in the early days of the Internet and social media. So maybe our culture will figure this out eventually. But it seems to me that um, attending a stupid rally when you're 20 should not make you unemployable for the rest of your life, especially if you've changed your mind um, and have different views. Yeah, I think it's no coincidence that the phrase I hear thrown around a lot more lately is you're better than the worst thing you've done. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's right. And um, unfortunately, um, or fortunately, you know, I don't, you know, that there are benefits to having a catalog of historical events, right? I mean, there's, um, it's, it's good that a lot of this information is out there. But um, I, I, I do worry that there's, um, there hasn't been enough consideration in the private sector or civic institutions about what to do about this. Uh, there's a very good book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed by um, I forget the, the journalist's name. The last name's Ronson, I think. Um, I, I've met him, actually. I know oh, exactly okay. who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so fascinating book. Um, the listeners should check it out because it is all about people who, you know, tweeted a stupid joke or posted a stupid photo um, and have made themselves social pariahs or unemployable. Um, yeah. And there isn't, I don't think there's a clear policy response to that that is consistent with um, liberal values you know the idea that um free speech is important and um news organizations and social media companies should be able to um point people to true information about people um yeah i don't know so i'm sorry to end on a note of i don't know but i, I don't no. know what the answer is but it's something worth considering i think yeah i mean it's certainly not something we're going to figure out today so <laughs> i i do matthew i wish we had booked more time here but i'm just gonna have to have you back now yeah, well, thanks for having me and um, happy to come back anytime. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matthew. If you did, 
please share this episode with all your friends, neighbors, and enemies. Leave it a review. And if you haven't subscribed yet, click that little button. It says subscribe. It says follow. Let's click it. We don't smash buttons on this show. We just click it gently. Now, few themes that came up in this episode that you're going to hear a bit more about as this series on tech censorship progresses. First is that any attempt to regulate tech companies would most likely just end up strengthening larger ones at the expense of smaller competitors who might challenge them. And a more heavily regulated environment means higher startup costs, which means fewer people will want to enter the market. Now second, is the idea that we're blaming tech companies for society's ills. Technology makes it easier for people to access extremist content, but it doesn't convert people who aren't prone to extremism in the first place. And in many ways, trying to prevent extremism by regulating large social media companies is probably going to be as successful as trying to end drug abuse by making them illegal. Without addressing the root cause, the market merely moves further underground. And the last is somewhat related to that, which is in an era where more and more of the working age population has a social media history reflecting a far dumber and more reckless version of themselves, society needs to develop a better way to help people grow beyond their past. And an example that Matthew cited was the case of the folks who marched in the Unite the Right rally. What incentive do they have to evolve in their thinking if society is just going to further alienate them? And I'm not saying... We need to approve of fringe ideologies, but I do think we need to think about a way to help these folks find a way out of them. And not a problem I'm thinking we're going to solve in the 30 seconds or less I have, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Pop me an email at heydan, that's H-E-Y and Dan, my name, at ydhty.com. As always, music courtesy of Quellertac. YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bo-bo-bye.